Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. If you have your Bibles, open to John 5. I'll read from verses 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Father God, we thank you for this privilege to come together as a family, as your people, as, as one body. We welcome all those that are um, checking us out. We thank you that everyone is welcome here. No one is misjudged and prejudged because of you. That we all stand before you as your sons and daughters. We ask that this uh, time together would be pleasing and glorifying to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, real fast, I want you to see this face and remember, Anthony, uh, as you think of the community center, God is using him in incredible ways, not only to minister to uh, the 3,000 memberships, family units at the center uh, and singles, but to take sport into our city and beyond. So, Anthony, we're so grateful for how you're using sport to spread the gospel. And raise your hand if you're going to pray for the community center this week. Just, just intentionally pray for the community center this week. There you Thank go. You. You're not Thank in you. alone. All right. Bless you, bro. Can we clap for Anthony? You are not betraying God if you clap in church. I want you to know that. It is an honor to God to clap. The scriptures say, clap your hands, right? And so we can do that. Uh, I, too, want to welcome Evelyn, and I'm so grateful, not only a pastor, former pastor here, but denominational leader, the best leader I know of, and truly a mentor to me. There'd be no Gary at PCC without Evelyn, and so uh, you have her to blame uh, for me. Uh, So it's such an honor to have you here. Before I introduce our speaker, I want to speak about the book club we're going through this summer and give one last plug and push for you to buy the book Gracism and enter in or just have a conversation. We'd invite you to do that online through our Facebook group, uh, our reading group on this, or you can just go out to lunch with somebody and have a conversation. Um, You know this, our city is 56% non-white. Heaven, Revelation 7-9, shows this beautiful tapestry of multiple races around the throne. And we believe it should be on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, we are, on, this is not a one-off, this is an intentional march forward of what it would mean to be a multicultural community as a church. And this is a great primer to start. Very basic, 
uh, this book, Grace Sensitive. But I am learning, and everyone listen, I am unlearning so much by reading this basic book. I want to invite you to in the back, please buy this book, join the conversation uh, online or in person. Um, it is such a gift to us to have this and to start a conversation together. Okay? We good? Are we good? Okay, good. Awesome. Now, I get the pleasure of introducing our speaker this morning. Garrett actually started his first time at PCC with through VBS as a kid. He said he remembers walking across the bridge right after it was built. He's that old, everybody. Uh, he came through our high school ministry uh, long before me, long before a lot of people, um, and, and went to school, went to seminary, and in 99 returned to plant a church in the Bay Area. Uh, Garrett, I've always felt like, is a great ministry partner of PCC. He has shepherded, pastored a church. Today, he's a minister uh, and a leader for students at Stanford University with a ministry called Christian Union. Christian Union started in the Ivy League schools. This is their first West Coast plant. They develop Christian leaders at the, uh, you know, whatever this means, the greatest universities uh, on our campus. They're going to Sac State, my alma mater next, right? Ivy, Stanford, Sac State. Uh, Garrett has a wife, Susan. She is just wonderful. Uh, he's got three kids. Garrett actually worships in our 905 service and is a gift to me, and I know he'll be a gift to you. Would you give a PCC welcome to Dr. Garrett Brown? Well, thanks, Gary. Thanks. Good morning, PCC. Such a... Such an honor to be here, and uh, yeah, like Gary said, I have a, a long-time connection here at PCC through the years. Anthony was saying how young he feels after 30 years. Anthony was my high school, one of my high school counselors when I was in the youth group, so <laughs> you are quite old indeed, Anthony, it turns out. I, uh, I am really honored to jump into the series that you've been in this summer that's connected to this, this book that I, as well, have been going through and, and like Gary says, learning and challenging and, and unlearning some things. Um, so we're going to look at this in a second. Uh, speaking of Anthony, I was um, working at the center some, some time ago, and I ran into one of my wife's friends, not a woman I knew very well, but I think she was in a book club with Susan or something, and my wife sometimes says, you know, you need to be friendly to my friends, make them think you're nice. And I say, I am nice. And, but I, I thought, okay, I'll, I saw this woman, so I, I see her at the gym, and I said, hey, good to see you. You know, I didn't know you worked out here. Have a great workout, that kind of thing. And then as you crisscross, go back by the different equipment, you do the, uh, hey, there you are, you know, the finger guns, all right, keep at it. And, and then as I left, I made an effort to, one more time, say, all right, Great to see you, see you next time, have a good, good week. So I come home and I say to my wife Susan, I say, hey, I ran into your friend Lisa at the gym and you'd be proud of me, I was really friendly and I chatted her up and she looks at me funny, she says, Lisa moved out of state like three years ago. <laughs> she said, I don't know who you were talking to. I appreciate you're trying to be that friendly husband, you know, but turns out you're just the creepy guy at the gym. <laughs> and, and I say this because we have certain hang-ups on identity, right, on how we see ourselves, how we want others to see us, how others actually see us. But the narrative of how Jesus sees us, how Jesus sees other people, 
and how he compels us to see other people as he sees them, that should be a greater narrative, right? That should be the truer and better story of identity, both how we see ourselves and how we see others. And that has a lot to do with this passage here, or this, uh, this series, seeing others as Jesus sees them. And, and the passage that Anthony read, John 5, is a wonderful passage of this man that I'm gonna call him an invisible man in a lot of ways. And by invisible, I mean this. He's not named in this passage. He, he doesn't have any particular import or prominence. He's been hanging out, doing the same thing the same way, expecting a new result but that is not happening for 38 years, and yet Jesus sees him entirely different. He doesn't see him as invisible. He seeks after him, and he loves him profoundly. And there are people that we can say are invisible people on the margins of our lives. You might even feel invisible in in this church, in the place that God has called us to, to connect and to know each other deeply. You might even feel invisible here. And I want you to know that Jesus sees you. And we're learning, we're trying to be better about extending grace to those who feel like they don't have a voice, don't have any import in our society. And so the thing we wanna really zero in on, our our big idea this morning, as it connects to this idea of seeing others face to face, is that grace sees those on the margins, and no one is invisible. So we're gonna look at this passage and we're gonna look at the different players in this passage who play a part in this story. I'm gonna start with an unusual place. I'm gonna start with the the pool itself. The location is a player in this story. And it says in uh, John 5, verse two, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. I'm starting here because for years, people didn't really believe this pool existed because archeology span hadn't found it. There, there wasn't a pool with five colonnades or porched column, column porches in and around the gates of Jerusalem. And so scholarship and science thought, well, this is just another one of those fanciful details that the Bible adds that we can't really trust, we can't really believe. And so the Bible then just gets ushered into that collection of other fanciful religious books that don't really purport to tell anything about the real world, they're just telling nice Sunday school stories. And I start with the pool because John adds detail for a reason. John is very specific about the detail he adds, and he has a very specific location for this pool and a description. Uh, What kind of crazy pool has five sides, you know, five with five porches? And for generations, people dismissed it as just being one of those fanciful stories until a German man who worked in Jerusalem as a missionary archaeologist, how cool is that job description, by the way? Conrad Schick discovers in the late 1800s this pool underneath what is now the the Church of St. Anne in in the old city of Jerusalem, Muslim Quarter, and apparently after the destruction of the Romans in AD 70, a couple decades after Jesus, this pool, along with everything else, had been buried under the rubble and built up on. But what he found, what Conrad Schick found, was two basins surrounded by colonnades. I think, do we have this picture here of the pool? There we go. With a walkway or a bridge in between, also covered by a porch. So here you have a five-colonnade pool. Why is this, why is this important? 
It's important, church, because if the Gospels are just another one of these other religious writings, and we can just group it in with the, the world's religions, the world's religions eventually come down. They may all have different bells and whistles, but they all come down to one claim, God saves the worthy. God rescues the worthy. God shows favor to the worthy. That's, that's how religion ends up coming down on. And Jesus has a very different claim, doesn't he? The claim of Jesus is not that God shows favor to the worthy. The claim of Jesus, as we see in this story, along with countless other stories, is very different. In fact, the very first public sermon of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, the first words out of his mouth, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Folks, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel is not God shows favor to the worthy. It is exactly the opposite. When you have nothing to offer, when you come empty-handed to God, he gives you everything. He gives you his kingdom. Thank you, Lord. And so the men who wrote these words, who were eyewitnesses or, or close associates with eyewitnesses, they were in the dirt and the dust of Jerusalem, and, and these words took place in time and space, and these events took place in time and space. And so the reason why we even start with the pool, and, and it's discovered exactly as it was described by the Apostle John, is because it affirms this great truth, God does not show favor to the worthy, grace to all. Grace to all. And this is going to be the message in, in this scene. So we start with this, the first one. Then we look at this, this man itself. The second player in this story is the man himself. Verse five says, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? So the, the NIV and the ESV taught, tell, this, uh, tell us that this man was invalid which is just a general word in the original language, which means having some kind of debilitating condition. And in, in the context, we know that he probably had some kind of paralysis. He couldn't move. And so this man, who didn't have a name, didn't have a voice, he had been at this pool for 38 years. Whether he was 38 years old and had a lifelong condition or it happened later in his life, we don't know. But this is a long time to be struggling with a certain brokenness, with a physical brokenness like this, like countless others at the pool. And he had been holding on to this, this folklore, this superstition that was connected to the pool in Bethesda that said that there'd be a, an angel that would come periodically, stir up the waters, and if you could get into the waters, you would be healed of, of what ails you. And this was an old folklore. And for 38 years, this man had been doing this. 38 years, making his way, hobbling his way, crawling or whatever, to this pool, hoping against hope for something that was never going to come, namely this healing and putting his entire trust in, in the superstition. Interestingly, if you look at where Jesus was just prior to this, there's, John offers seven different miracles, seven different signs to to present Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And in the second sign, in chapter four, he sees a very prominent man, an official, a nobleman, whose son was dying of a fever. So here is a very important man with a very urgent situation. Now here we have, in the very next chapter, completely unimportant man. And there's zero urgency connected to him. He's just this invisible guy holding on to this crutch, ironically, that will never happen. 
And there are invisible people like this around us. Like Gary said, my, my ministry now, after being in pastoral ministry for a long time, my ministry now takes me to the campus of Stanford University, and I have a privilege of working with some of the most brilliant students, uh, way beyond my level, for sure, intellectually. I thought when I came to Stanford that the main issues I would be looking at that you think about with brokenness on a college campus would be things like uh, toxic relationships and the hookup culture or, or binge drinking, alcohol and drug use, and those are certainly there. I think those are part of almost every college campus. But what I was unprepared for, what I was naive about, honestly, was a very prevalent brokenness, the specter of anxiety and depression. And it's rampant on our college campuses. Boston University did a study a few years ago saying that one in six students in our college campuses have been diagnosed or treated for one of those two things, anxiety or depression. About one in four students would say that symptoms of anxiety and depression have affected their academic performance. I have a, a young man, came to us as a freshman, eager, brilliant kid, uh, uh, made a profession of faith early on. He comes from a small town in the South where he was valedictorian of his high school, second place in a big national science competition, big scholarship, one of, his only, one of the only family members, uh, it is only people in his family to go to college, let alone that big fancy college in California. Remarkable kid, exceptional kid. And he comes to Palo Alto and he realizes that he is just one of 7,000 exceptional kids. And that, because his identity was bound up in being a valedictorian, being the smartest one in, in achievement and in, in, in producing, in, in, he found out he was just invisible. He found out there were 7,000 people just like him or maybe even slightly better. And so that, that preyed on his identity and he started to, to self-medicate in other unhealthy ways. There are unhealthy people all around us. There are broken, invisible people all around us. Grace should give us the eyes to see the broken people, like this man. And then Jesus comes. Here's the third player in our story. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew, this is verse six, and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool and the water stirred up. While I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. What's interesting to me as I read this passage, Jesus didn't just stumble upon this pool. He went there intentionally, didn't he? He didn't have to go through the sheep gate. He didn't have to go to the pool of Bethesda. He didn't have to wander around the dozens of people, uh, different people struggling with their illnesses, waiting to get into the pool. And just like in chapter four, when he didn't have to go through Samaria, he had a divine appointment. He wanted to meet with this woman at the well. In the same way, the very next chapter, he had a divine appointment with this nameless, broken, invisible man at the pool of Bethesda. And it says he, he saw him and he knew him. Wow, what a beautiful description of grace. To see someone for who they really are and to know their pain, to know what they struggle with, 
to know what they really need and are looking for. Jesus sees us and he knows us. And he's asked this question to this man, do you want to be healed? Such a powerful, loaded question. We could actually spend a lot of time on that alone, but we can't for the sake of time. But what a powerful question Jesus asks, do you want to be healed? And the man's response is telling. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool and the water is stirred. It's interesting, he doesn't say, of course I want to be healed. What do you think I've been doing for 38 years? He sort of says that because what he says is, yes, help me get into the pool. <laughs> That's his response to the Son of God asking if he wants healing. Yes, help me get my healing the way I've been trying to get it. Yes, help me attain essentially what he's saying, and we can say this too, help me get my salvation, Lord. Help me get my own rescue. And Jesus, in essence, says you're, you're holding on to the wrong hope. I am your rescue. I am your salvation. I am the living water. And Jesus just cuts right through that, and he, he heals them on the spot. Get up, take up your mat, and, and walk into the rest of your life. He sees him. He knows him. He heals him. That's the formula of grace. That's what grace compels us to do. Well, then there's a mess that generates after this. There is uh, some fallout, and, and this also becomes a player in our story. Let me read uh, verse 9 and 10. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So when the, the gospel writer here mentions the Jews, what he specifically means is the Jewish religious leaders, or, or probably the Pharisees, we know. And the Pharisees were moralists. In other words, they held on to this uh, worldview that said they, they hold the rules, they hold other people to the rules, and this man that they had ignored very successfully ignored for 38 years, suddenly they were extremely interested in. Why? Because he broke their rules. Because he was walking around carrying his mat. It's, it's a ridiculous thing for us, I think, to, to think about because we're so far removed from that. But moralism is so threatened by grace. Moralism is so threatened by the acts of God. And let me be very clear what I mean by this too, because we can stumble over the definitions. We are called, church, to moral living. We are called to holy living. That is living as Jesus did, living as Jesus modeled. We are called to that. But moralism is something different. Moral living is living like Jesus. Moralism is replacing Jesus with the law the rules, the obligation, the expectation. And moralism is threatened by grace. And grace says to moralists, you have no power here. You have no power here. The kingdom of God is available to the lowest, to the forgotten, to the outcast, to the invisible. He says to the Pharisees, as, as Jesus then gets into this confrontation a bit with the, uh, with the Jewish religious leaders who were upset by not just the man holding his mat, but Jesus daring to, to heal him on the Sabbath day, breaking their rules, 
Um, if you have your Bibles open at the very end of this section, verse 16, it says, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working till now, and I am working. Jesus' response to them is not to get into a, a theological argument. He, he rarely ever gets into big theological arguments. He just states who he is and his mission. My father is at work bringing reconciliation to his wayward children. He is at work putting this world to rights. God continues to work, and I am working right along with him. And I will not stop working at this great task, this great mission of calling lost sheep back home until I can say it is finished. And he continues that work until he can say it is finished on the cross. And those who hold to a worldview that says you must obey this list of rules are very threatened by grace when grace says no. Grace to all. God doesn't save the worthy. God doesn't show favor to the worthy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. So then how do we take this passage and how do we make it so it, it, it makes sense in our lives as we think about, well, there are invisible people on the fringes of our lives, on the margins. How does grace compel us to live that way? And I'm gonna pause here in John 5 for a second, and I wanna go to the Old Testament, because you see, Jesus is the truer and better king of Israel, offering a truer and better picture of God's kingdom. But there's a prototype that he comes from. He comes from the line of David. So I wanna just pause here and go back a thousand years, because I think this will help give us a, a punctuation to this passage. I wanna go back a thousand years to King David, the second king of Jerusalem, not the first king, the first king of Jerusalem was, of course, King Saul, who was not a godly man, who was an insecure man, who was threatened by David and David's popularity, who was threatened by the fact that, that God's prophet had anointed David. And so Saul, on a couple of occasions at least, tried to kill David. But to make things more complicated, Saul's son, Jonathan, and David were best friends, closer than brothers. So a very complex relationship. And then Jonathan had a young son named Mephibosheth. Unfortunate name for the poor kid. <laughs> so Jonathan dies in battle. Saul dies in battle. Suddenly David is, is thrust as the new king of Israel. And, and poor little Mephibosheth, his handlers end up in the whole melee. They end up dropping him and crippling the kid for life. By the way, Game of Thrones has nothing on the Old Testament. This is some weird stuff here. So David is now king, and Mephibosheth goes and lives out in exile, his young life. And David now, a few years go by. This is in 2 Samuel 9. I'm sorry, I didn't turn there, but let me just tell the story. 2 Samuel 9, David is now established as king, and, and he's closing out some accounts. And he says, find Mephibosheth and bring him to me. Now, Mephibosheth and his folks, are, his handlers, are, are living way out in the outskirts. Now, think of this guy. He's probably a young man now, probably a teenager now. He's got a, a physical impairment. He's orphaned. He's poor, doesn't have a dime to his name. And he's a, a political exile and a threat to the current regime. And, he, and he's got an unfortunate name. So he's a five-time loser. 
And he gets word that the king is looking for him. And he figures, well, my number is up, I'm done. He found, he found out where I am and I have no choice but to go to him. He's probably welcoming this as opposed to his miserable life he had. So he, if you can imagine Mephibosheth going to Jerusalem, hobbling his way up in front of David. And David stands up and says, Mephibosheth, fear not. For today I will show you kindness for your father Jonathan's sake. And I will restore the lands that once belonged to your grandfather Saul. And as of today, you sit at my table as one of my sons. Mephibosheth, welcome home. How does grace see others? How did David see Mephibosheth? He showed him kindness. He restored what was lost, and he adopted him as a son. What does Jesus do to this man in John 5? He shows him kindness. He sees him, and he knows him. He didn't have to. He goes out of his way. What does he do? He restores what was lost, specifically his ability to walk and to be independent. But he also invites him to be part of the family of God. As he argues with the Pharisees, I will not stop working, doing the great work that my father is doing, namely bringing the lost children home. And so these folks become our commitments to those who are on the fringes, those who are invisible. To show them kindness, to help them restore what has been lost to them. and to bring them into the family of God. Some years ago, I was a, uh, a youth pastor up in, in Lake County. <clears throat> and it was, like Gary said, we moved back here to the Bay Area in 99 to plant a church. So right at the end of that period of my time in, um, in Kelseyville, I was in an evangelical free church in Kelseyville, I was uh, just finishing up my ministry there and, and some relationships, and I had two young guys, two graduating high school seniors I was very close to. Their names were Andrew and Luke, and they were just top-notch kids. They were just uh, smart, spiritually solid, you know, popular kids, great. They were both going off to school. I was going to move back down here, so we were going to spend a Saturday together golfing. And honestly, Andrew and Luke were just easy kids to spend time with, and, and they were life-giving. And the morning that we were going golfing, I got a, a call from an older woman at the church. And she was the grandmother of another kid in my youth group named Eli. She was the grandmother and caretaker of, of this kid, Eli. And Eli had some special needs and some, some learning challenges and uh, some developmental issues. And he was a really sweet kid. But it took a lot of effort sometimes to be with Eli. And in my flesh, I'll be honest with you, in my flesh, I thought... Oh, I, I'm sorry, I should say that the grandmother called me because Eli was moving out of Kelseyville to Santa Rosa to be part of a, a group home connected to the city college there to help him learn how to be more independent, a special program for kids with, with special needs. And it's a great program, great opportunity for Eli, and she waited until the day of to say, hey, I don't have anyone to move him to Santa Rosa. So I couldn't say no, and I call up Andrew and Luke, say, sorry guys, I'm, I'm off golfing today, I gotta help Eli. And right away, they were like, we're there. We're gonna help you move Eli. So Andrew and Luke load up the church van, we move Eli to Santa Rosa, which when you live in Kelseyville all your life, Santa Rosa is the big city. And we spend a day with this kid who's, who's nervous about this new era of his life, and, and you can imagine he's a little shaky, and 
Several times, Andrew and Luke keep pouring back into him, and, and at the end, they lay hands on him, and they pray over him, and as we leave, Eli in tears says, you two are my best friends. And it was one of the best days I ever spent in ministry that I almost missed because I was being selfish about who I wanted to pour into. And God taught me a lesson, a day with Eli was a life lesson. Garrett, are you any less in need of kindness of others? To know you, to really look into you, pour into your life. Garrett, are you any less in need of restoration of what you have lost? And are you any less in need of belonging and family and community like Eli needed? This is our great task, church, to see, do the impossible, see the invisible, see those on the margins like Jesus did, to go out of our way, to show them kindness, to help restore what has been taken from them, and to welcome them into the family of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word and how you've preserved this, even, even preserving the, the physical uh, remnants of these stories, Lord, deep in the ground, and we can dig them up and say, this is where Jesus stood and met this man. Lord, I pray that uh, we can take the words of this gospel, and we can understand the great mission that we have, to get out of our own lives, our own insecurities, to do the impossible and to see the invisible. Invisible people that might be on the street, at Sequoia Station, might be in our classroom, might be in our office, might be down the block from us, might be sitting in this pew with us. Or Lord, for those today who feel themselves like they're invisible, they don't have a voice, no one's really interested. Lord, may we have the eyes to see our brothers and sisters as you see them every person an image bearer, every person a recipient of grace, every person for whom you went to the cross to finish the work that God continually does on our behalf. We thank you for this and we praise your name this morning by the risen person of Jesus, amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California, and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.